The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, welcome. We've been doing a series on greed, hatred, and delusion. Tonight we're going to talk about delusion. Delusion. You know, it's, it's one of those difficult things because how do you know what you don't know? When, when Buddhists give definitions of, of delusion, they talk about chaos and confusion in the mind. Chaos and confusion in the mind. When we think about delusion, typically, conventionally, we think, oh, that's something that isn't true. Something that isn't real. So I, I kind of want to make a distinction that we're not really talking about whether something is true or not, like a value judgment. Delusion has to do with the failure or the unwillingness to see things as they are. As they really are. Now, this isn't necessarily a conscious effort not to see things as they are. There are all kinds of reasons we don't see things as they are. One of, one of them has very much to do about what we bring to the moment of the experience. You know, it's rather like uh, a large part of sight is knowing what you're trying to pick out when you see it. You know, if, if, if you're expecting, somebody says, oh, look, there's a bird over there, you immediately look for a form like a bird. And if it happens to be a plane, you're still looking for a bird. Same general shape in the sky, but it takes a while to make that shift because the mind is set up looking for a lot of our life has that quality. We're looking for something. We're expecting something to be a certain way. And so we're looking for it. Sometimes we see it. Sometimes it's there. <laughs> also, delusion has elements of adding something to reality. Okay? So we have the evidence before us, and then we have the meaning and the complexity that we add to whatever that experience is. We, we come into the moment thinking, ah, this is the way I am, and this is how it is, and then whatever happens, happens. Delusion is not noticing that it's not what we expected. Not noticing that we aren't the same person that we said we were, the moment before. In a Buddhist sense, delusion has to do with not recognizing the characteristics of existence like impermanence, dissatisfaction, lack of a permanent self, because we have the habit of sort of believing this is who I am and this is how I am and and this is, these are the things I believe, and these are my principles. And there's a lot of mying to all of our experience. This experience is driven by what I'm bringing to this moment. And therefore, your experience is not the same as my experience, even though we're sitting in the same room, seeing the same things, experiencing the same things. Because we're all adding our own stuff to it. 
some of the way I think the world is has to do with how I think I can control the world. We spend a whole lot of time controlling what's going to happen next. We do it through planning. We do it by eliminating all the things that we don't want to have happen, and we, we guard against certain kinds of things happening. We're so sure that we can control the next moment, and there's very little that we actually control. So a lot of delusion has to do with discovering that what we think we can control, we don't get to, unfortunately. There's a, a major part of our experience has to do with our view, what we believe. It's very interesting to go through a day and notice all of the things that you believe, all of the preconceived notions you have about things about yourself, that I have about myself. I'm this kind of person. I'm doing this kind of thing. And there's a dislocation when it doesn't match up to our experience that causes suffering. One way that we mitigate this is through meditation and through mindfulness practice. So we we practice, we develop the capacity to notice what's actually happening in the moment. Because like being told to look for a certain thing and then only seeing that thing, when we have a a notion about what's going on in the world, it sometimes takes us a while to catch up to what's actually happening. And the ability to notice what's happening is impaired by where we're looking, by what we choose to be aware of. When we think about mindfulness, we kind of think that, you know, mindfulness means I'm paying attention. And I, I, I know what's going on in the room, and I'm paying attention to me, and I'm paying attention. But actually, we can't pay attention to everything. Our awareness is on something. Sometimes our awareness is on our own attitude. Sometimes our awareness is on our physical reality, what we're seeing, tasting, hearing, touching, Sometimes our attention is on someone else, watching what they do. Sometimes our attention is on our minds. All of those things control what we're going to see in the, ne- in the next moment. So it's related to the focus of our attention. Where is our attention? Is our attention directed This is what I expect to have happen, and we just don't notice anything else that's happening? Or are we more open? Do we meet each moment open to what may arise? More available as opposed to directed? That's going to change our experience. It's going to change how we see things, how how what is in front of us is interpreted We have a tendency to want to change and judge what we see. Everything we want to fix, I want to fix. If it's not exactly right, I want to fix it. Oh, this is not exactly right. The challenge is to separate noticing from our minds, what our minds are preconditioned to look at, and our minds' tendency to want to have things a certain way. to separate noticing from what we brought into the moment. 
to separate noticing from a lack of knowledge about where our attention is directed. Sometimes we don't even know where our attention is directed. You know, you walk into a room and you expect to see something and then, and, and then it isn't there. <laughs> you know, something else entirely is happening. There are things that we agree on when we walk into a room. I and mean, we're not totally different, right? When we walk into this room, we see this, this, uh, this stuff on the floor, and it's kind of soft, and it's, well, it's, it's cushier than the floor out there, and it's kind of a neutral color. And we all pretty well agree that it's an, a neutral color. It's not red or green or, you know, it's this kind of beigey color. And it has this rough texture, and we, and we call it a carpet usually. Uh, usually the word rug is associated with something that you can pick up and move around. But this, this we call carpeting, usually. Although, you know, just rug and carpet can cause confusion between people. What do you call it? So we notice that there's a physical reality to this. It has a material form. Okay? This is one of the ways that we experience things. There's a physical reality to it. There's a texture. There's a shape. There's something we can see or taste or feel. So there's the material world of form. And then there's a feeling, feeling part to how we experience. That feeling is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So this being a neutral color, I'm kind of neutral about this carpet. I neither like it nor dislike it. I'm just sort of neutral about it. My cushion, on the other hand, is really pleasant. It's pleasant. I can call it pleasant. So we have the material world. We have the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral part. Then we have uh, concepts, perception, concepts. So if I look at this... This is kind of this is hard. It's got, kind of got a rough texture, and it's smooth on the inside, and it's circular, and it's cold. It's got a texture of being cold, and uh, it's you know it's kind of heavy. And then there's this other piece that's sort of oblong, and it's a little warmer, and it's got a, an elongated shape, and it's got edges, and it's got a little different piece over here. And, you know, if I put these two things together, I call this a bell. The bell is the concept. The bell is the name I give to it. Now, if you told a child to draw a picture of a bell, they probably would not draw this picture. They'd probably draw something that has a little knob in the middle that you can ring, right? So it's a concept. It it isn't actually related to reality. Reality is this thing. But we call it a bell. And then there's mental formations and thoughts. We think about it. We have judgments about it. I like this bell. I don't like this bell. This bell would be better if it was a lighter color. You know, I really like my bells to be one of those singing bells so that I can get it to ring by just running. I wish this bell was different. Those are thinkings. So that's part of the experience that we're bringing to the moment. Also, part of our experience is what we're thinking about what we see. This is where we're busy assigning meaning. (laughs) Everything has to have meaning. All right, so we have the material world, the feeling, 
the mental formations and thinking, we have the concepts, and then we have consciousness or awareness. What are we paying attention to? Okay, all of these things have as much to do with experience as they do about how we create who we are. These are really ways that we define our experience. What's pleasant to me may be unpleasant to you. What's hard to me may not be very hard to you. But my interpretation of things is X. All of these ways of experiencing the world are things that we can create, and they are all changeable. They're not permanent. I may like this rug today and not like it tomorrow. I may enjoy this bell today and not like it tomorrow. Everything about that experience is changing all the time. And when we try to make it the same is when we run into the problem of thinking the next moment is going to be a certain way, and we are deluded. These are called the five aggregates, by the way, that I just described in ways of of experiencing experience. Among the things that, that determine how we meet each moment has to do with attitude. What is my attitude? What's the mindset I'm bringing in? So someone today I was talking to said, you know, I do fine when I sit on the cushion. I sit down and I really settle pretty quickly and I get calm and I'm present and it feels really great. But he said, you know, I can't do that in the rest of my life at all. I mean, the rest of my life is just a mess. There's too much happening. Everything is happening all the time. I feel uncentered. I feel disturbed. I feel agitated all the time. Now, this is somebody that is going through a lot of changes right now. It doesn't surprise me that he's feeling agitated. So I asked him what happens when he is sitting and meditating, and his mind goes off, goes off into a story or planning. And he says, well, you know, I bring my, I bring my mind back when I notice. And I said, at that moment when you notice that you're gone is actually when you've arrived back. That's the moment when you're in this moment, when you're really here, is when you realize that you've been gone, and you can say, I'm back. I'm here. I'm right here in this moment. That realization, I'm right here in this moment, is available to you anytime. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me get a drink here. In order to notice how things really are, we have to be willing to say, I'm here no matter what's happening. Oh, I'm here. That's all. Just, I'm here. To notice, I'm here. Because the causes and conditions for this moment are always changing. They're always changing. You can't be sure of what's going to happen. And so your ability to just notice presence goes a long way to your being able to see things just as they are. A thought can trigger a mood or an emotion. 
or a belief system. So today I was in a store and someone was helping me with this product and somebody came up and picked up the box with my product in it and said, oh, is this mine? And the salesperson said, well, no. And he said, well, well, and he wanders off and he said, well, I can take your name and we can help you in a minute, you know. And you know, he, after a while, he came back when we were starting to move to another place. He comes over and he says, well, now, are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, so the comment I made to the salesperson at the time is, it's okay, he's French. He was French, by the way. But what happened is in my mind, I was remembering a former boss of mine who was French, who had this habit of sort of assuming that he was the most important person in the world and that everybody should pay attention to him right at that moment. And then I thought, this isn't because he was French. This is because of who he was. This was a bias that was triggered by a a familiar-sounding accent and I, my mind immediately flipped to, I don't expect anything of this person. This is conditioning. This is changing what's actually happening to fit some, some trigger, some trigger. It's important to know what your triggers are. Because those triggers are coloring the way you see things happening. So this is how we live our lives. We pay attention to what happens. We hear things, we touch things, we taste things, we see things. We apply those sense items to what we already know and form ideas and beliefs and concepts, and we attach meaning. And we say, okay, this is what it is. Now, what do we do about that? You know, you can say, well, just let go of all those preconceived things. But that's kind of simple, and it's not really the way things work. What we're looking for is uh, what is called clear, clear seeing, clear comprehension. We want to see things just as they are. We practice to see clearly. When we see clearly... We become disenchanted with all of the ideas that we have. And we just see this is what's true. This is what's happening. We become disenchanted. This leads to dispassion, the holding and the clinging. And suffering ceases. We don't have to let go of something. We have to see it and become not attached to it by not so entangled with it. We want to stop that entanglement. So there are four, four ways, roughly four ways, of training in clear comprehension. So the first one I want to talk about is recognizing the motivation behind an action. And I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I'm going to tell you this story. I'm go- so I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm then going to go back and say, on reflection, this is what was happening. And then I'm going to tell you about what was mitigating about it. So, um, 
All right, so here's the story. About a week ago, I was in Costco, and I went to the bathroom. And while I was in the stall, I heard some, somebody came, a man came into the room and started yelling, men are not allowed in here. This is the women's bathroom. Men are not allowed in here. I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. And then, he, you know, he, so he yelled it a few times, and then he, he apparently left. So I went out of the stall and was washing my hands, and there was somebody came out of the far end of the room and started washing hands and started yelling at me, can't I take a pee in privacy here and quiet? And So I said, you're the one yelling. Well, I just was, I was just taking a pee. And I said, you know, I don't really care. I'm okay. And then they said, well, aren't you the one that complained? I said, no, I'm not the one that complained. I really don't care. <laughs> oh, oh. And so there's lots of mumbling. And, and um, we started sort of chatting. And I finished washing my hands. And I'm walking out. And the, this person was walking out behind me and saying, yeah, I just wanted to take a pee. And I said, so aren't there stalls in the men's bathroom? And then she said to me, why would I want to do that? And I turned around, and I, for the first time, actually looked her in the eye and realized I was talking to a woman and not a man. I was crushed, mortified, mortified, and really sorry that I had delivered this pain, this hurt to her. And I, I took her arms in my hands, and I held them, and I apologized, told her how sorry I was, and I looked her right in the eye. And she looked at me, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, my entire life has been like this. And I apologized again, told her how sorry I was, that this was wrong, that uh, I didn't know what to say, just I was sorry. And after we, we stared into each other's eyes for a few minutes, and then I left. Okay, so in going back and looking at what had happened and what my experience was through all of that, I realized that at the moment that she started yelling at me, what arose for me was self-righteousness, and I brushed back with, I'm not the one yelling, I was conscious at the time of modulating my voice. It was, I'm not the one yelling, but it was righteousness nevertheless. It was self-righteousness. I recognized the harshness in my response. So I began trying to soften that by trying to carry on a conversation with this person, right? Just going to soften. But I did not look at this person. You know, other than out of the corner of my eye, because after all, this was a strange man in the women's bathroom. I wasn't going to, you know, be that friendly. Delusion, 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 delusion. First of all, I was very self-congratulatory about how open-minded I was that a man could be in the women's bathroom. I was not looking at this person 
to see who this person really was. She had a buzz cut and a, a baseball cap on and men's clothes, and I didn't even look. I did not look. I was preconditioned that a man was in the room. I didn't even bother looking. Delusion. I was... Um, when, when I looked at her, once, when I actually looked at her, I was overcome with empathic feelings toward her. My God, this must feel terrible. I was crushed that I had hurt her. After all my self-righteousness, I hurt her. And she was clearly hurt. We also both, she trusted me in that moment when I was looking her in the eye, or she wouldn't have bothered saying, well, all my, she could have been angry. All my life it's been like that. That wasn't what was happening. She was not angry. She was gentle. She was sad because she could see it was okay to be sad because I was sad. There was a very honest exchange, finally, at last, between us. It was clear. Nothing was fixed. It was a different moment. The damage had been done. But there was... There was... I loved her. Oh. Oh. How terrible to live this way. What was also true is that I have a practice of trying to be kind. So the harshness that I noticed caused me to realize this was unkind and led to the next part of the exchange between us. I could have just been nasty to him, her. It was kindness that caused me to actually look at her and not just go, oh, God, that was a screw-up and leave the room. It was kindness that, that took responsibility for um, how wrong I was, that I could apologize to her. Now, I'm not saying this in a self-congratulatory way because I'm not actually very proud of this exchange. What I'm saying is that the practice of kindness that has been part of my practice was also there when I was busy being mindless. And that what we do to combat delusion is we have an intention toward being awake, toward being kind, toward being present, toward being aware. And when we practice that, it will show up. This doesn't have to be a black and white story. It will show up. But it's important to notice the motivation behind the action. So in that sequence, some of my motivations were skillful and some of my motivations were very unskillful. The self-righteousness was not particularly skillful. The kindness was very skillful. The willingness to take responsibility was skillful. The mortification, 
kind of is in that neutral area. I don't, I, I don't want to give it a positive or negative name. It was there. So the second way of training toward clear comprehension is to know the suitability of an action. Okay? So we have a response. And the response is true, useful, skillful, timely. So I might say that my question about are there, men, are there stalls in the men's room was probably not very skillful. Was not, you know, it was just, I was chatting. I was actually offering an, an opportunity to explain why this man was in the bathroom. <laughs> but in retrospect, I could have asked that question. I could have made that opening a very different way. It was not timely. And one needs to be aware of spiritual self-images, right? That I'm a good girl part led me to be not very aware of what was actually happening. The third thing is knowing the fields of practice, the things that you can do. So mindfulness, effort, Really taking an effort to pay attention to what's happening. So the mindfulness of noticing I was harsh, that was, that was good mindfulness, that was being in touch. To recognize it was a harsh response. The mindfulness of what is the other person's response, where am I putting my energy, where am I putting my awareness? Have I left the room? I could have responded with all of that mortification by saying, just let me out of here. This whole thing is a mess. And, and that thought arose. That thought arose. Okay, I got to just get out of here. There are also the practices of uh, uh, renunciation, non-addiction. You know, what I mean by that is is there are some things that we like, we do, we admire, that we become quite attached to. You know, this way of being. I'm really attached to this way of being. And sometimes it's important to let go of that, to, to not have to do that, to not be rigid in the way that we approach the moments. And the fourth way is to understand what is non-delusion. And non-delusion is clearly knowing that things are impermanent, unreliable, and not self. Not self. So someone I was talking to the other day said, well, you know, I'm a really anxious person, so that's why this happens. And I'd been talking to her for about an hour, and I said, you know, In the last hour, I have seen no signs of anxiety. Why do you say you're an anxious person? Well, because I'm anxious all the time. And I said, well, clearly you're not, because you haven't been anxious for this last period. Well, yeah, but I'm an anxious person. Hmm. So I said, well, perhaps in your life, anxiety is very often present. But anxiety being present does not mean that you are an anxious person. 
because you are changing all the time. I am changing all the time. Things that I can say about myself are sometimes true and sometimes not present. And we get into the habit of saying, this is how I am. And we don't leave ourselves the freedom to be any other way. We don't give ourselves the freedom to behave in an unconventional way in a way that people don't expect us to be, that we don't expect us to be. It's very limiting to have these opinions about ourselves. We try to make things fit our views. So much, so much fixing and controlling. If I just control this, it's all going to be better. If I just control this thing about me, everything's going to be smooth. This putting a lot of energy into something that isn't fixed. We have to be open to reality revealing itself just as it is. We have to be open to that. It's not trivial because we're very conditioned people. What we want to do is create the conditions for reality to arise any way that it does. To not believe I'm really cranky till I get my first coffee in the morning. I may like coffee first thing in the morning, but I actually don't have to be cranky every morning just to get my coffee. But when we create this image and this idea we find ourselves trying to twist reality to fit it. This is what is delusion. This is where the suffering of delusion arises. We sometimes have this idea that if I, if I rush to become really good at mindfulness and kindness, everything's going to be great. And we put a lot of effort into that as if we're going to control who we become. This is also delusion. We just practice. We practice with hope. We practice with effort and diligence. But we don't assume that we're going to be a certain way. We are humans. We need to be open to the possibility of how our lives will actually evolve. We have to be willing to be surprised. Be willing to be surprised. So, those are my thoughts for tonight. Uh, thank you. Does anybody have any comments? You know, when I'm, I was thinking about delusion and how it manifests in my life, I found it sticky. Yeah, it's kind of... I don't want to believe that I don't see things as they are. I don't really want to believe that I come into the moment 
with preconceived ideas about how it's going to be. And the truth is, it's not deliberate. You know, we don't try to be obscure. We don't, we actually don't even think of ourselves necessarily as being unchanging. You know, well, I can't, I can't change. But we do have these fixed notions about how we meet the world. When I was uh, when I was younger, much much younger, I was a scientist and I worked in this pretty casual place. But I also sometimes had responsibility with clients, so I dressed erratically. Right. So one day, this guy who was a painter, he was doing work around the the building. He came up to me and he said, "I can't figure you out." I just don't get it. He said, some days you come in here, you got a tie-dyed T-shirt on. Some days you got a suit on. What do you do here? (laughs) Because he wanted to put me in a box somewhere. He wanted to say, okay, I can figure this person out, and I know what to expect from them. You know, those days when I was willing to be quite that broad in my representation to people diminished as I aged. I became more concerned with how do people see me? Not necessarily how do they react to me, but I became aware of how I dressed and how I behaved influenced what people expected of me. It took me some time to figure out that I was doing that with all of my experience as well. I was, I was sort of trying to shape my experience and people's experience of me. And I wasn't giving myself the freedom to just show up as I was. Just show up. Just show up. And see what happens. So, it's a short evening. (laughs) Thank you all.